With the advent of functional neuroimaging methods, it is now possible to obtain objective information from normal subjects and patients regarding their subjective pain experience. Professor Irene Tracy, director of the Oxford Centre for Functional Magnetic Resonance Imaging of the Brain, explains how MRI works and then talks about her research into people's perceptions of pain. What is your primary research? What I'm interested in is understanding how people experience pain and where the signals that come from different parts of the body as they maybe come into contact with pain-inducing things, so touching a flame, cutting yourself, falling over and bruising. So where there is damage to the tissue, how do those signals arrive to the brain and what parts of the brain do they activate, which basically gives you that experience that, you know, ouch, this hurts. And so this concept of pain being an actual perception and something that you have to have a brain in order to experience pain has been, you know, a long sought-after question that people have been challenged to try and understand both philosophically and from a neuroscience perspective, you know, for many hundreds and thousands of years. We've understood and we increasingly understand a lot about the mechanisms of how these tissue-damaging events like heat and mechanical stimuli, how they actually damage the sort of skin or parts of your muscles or your joints and bones. And that sort of concept of activating the particular receptors that will transmit this information, that this is going to do you damage, so you probably should do something about it, we call nociception, which is just a fancy term, nociceptor, for a pain-inducing receptor. And historically it's quite interesting because the the sort of expression a nociceptor was coined by Sherrington, who was a very famous physiologist who worked here in Oxford many, many years ago in the physiology department. And um, he was the first person doing experiments, as they did in those days, on themselves, cutting themselves and recording from their own nerves, came up with this idea that there were particular cells just underneath the skin that only became excited and active when they were in touch with things that ultimately would cause an experience of pain. And then there were other types that didn't. So normal touch, if I just sort of touch you, or if people just experience their normal touch, this is activating other types of receptors that aren't pain-inducing receptors. So this sort of understanding of what goes on the periphery, people had a good idea of nociception and the idea that, you know, there's nociception, there are these specialised receptors, they can transmit information from the sort of standard things that we know will cause pain, so heat and not cold being two examples in the thermal domain. Mechanical, obviously everybody's experienced maybe hitting their thumb with a hammer or a pinprick or a paper cut, that type of thing. And then we have chemical pain as well. So a lot of pain can be induced by acids or I'm sure people have chopped their chilli peppers and then rubbed their eyes having cut them and, and that's very burning pain sensation. And I can, I can come back to that maybe in a little bit and explain how we use chilli peppers in our experiments. So all this sort of idea of what goes on at the start was where people began. But right back to Descartes' time, people knew that that's not enough. You don't, you know, this nociception isn't pain. So, you know, something can be nociceptive and it can cause damage, but you might not experience it as pain. In certain circumstances, you might find that, you know, something that is clearly damaging your body, actually, you don't experience as painful. And in other situations, you see, well, you can't see any logical reason why somebody should be saying they're in pain because there doesn't seem to be too much damage, but they're screaming and crying and having obviously a very painful experience. So this sort of discrepancy, if you like, between how much damage you have and how much pain you experience, this what I refer to as a non-linearity between the nociceptive input and the pain that you ultimately experience, 
is part of what we try to understand because that's where it starts to get interesting in terms of clinical pain and it starts to get interesting in terms of understanding this whole idea of perceptions generally in neuroscience and what controls perceptions and how can perceptions be altered based on your distraction and your attention and your mood and all these other things that as human beings we do in our everyday life. You know, we live our lives in this very multi-sensory mode. We don't live in an experimental setting. So what we are trying to understand is that more sort of complex perception and what really the brain has to do to put it all together in terms of these signals that come in from these nociceptors. How is it that you can have a very small pain experience with a very big nociceptive input because for that particular situation you might be very distracted because it could be that you know you've been bitten by a shark but you need to swim to shore and it doesn't do you any good to be focusing and wallowing in your pain at that time you just block it in order to get away from the situation when the high arousal situation's over you then will experience a very big pain event because then you know those no susceptive signals that have been damaged by the shark bite will come flowing in and you'll experience it so again we simulate that type of a thing not obviously doing that experiment but we'll simulate why is it that and how is it that the brain's got this amazing capacity to just block it because for that particular situation, it's not good for you in order to experience it. So you've got this very powerful modulatory ability of the brain and the mind to control the nociceptive input and in effect control what's allowed entry to the brain. And if you control that, you control the perception. On the very basic level, what's the purpose of these pain receptors? In terms of acute pain, so if we sort of start to think about more specific definitions, so an acute pain experience would be that scenario of you put your finger in a candle flame or you prick yourself that has a great protective warning system and that's why they're there they're to tell you withdraw your hand don't do that again (laughs) you know as a child we learn only once do we have to put our finger in a candle and as a small child you never do it again sure now you can't remember when you first did it but you sure did it and you only had to do it once before your brain wired itself up and remembered that association and then now from there on you know oh If I put my finger in there, it's going to hurt me. So I don't. I avoid it. So it provides a protective warning system. It trains you to avoid situations that you know will cause damage to your body. And that's great. So that's a vital function. And in fact, that's one of the challenges in treating it for clinicians and for the pharmaceutical industries who are trying to develop drugs to treat all forms of pain is you want to stop the pain that's bad, but still have the body capable of experiencing pain because it's so it's so basic i mean it's one of the most fundamental sensory emotional phenomenon really that get laid down you know if you go back to the caveman you know pain was pretty basic raw sensory phenomenon that they had to have and, and that's anatomically again sort of represented if you like in that these systems that we increasingly understand are important for pain you know these are very old systems hardwired and old parts of the brain there are newer ones coming in now as we become more sophisticated and complex and those become more relevant as pain becomes chronic so again the example i've used of acute pain being a good warning system you know you hurt yourself you you avoid it you you will look after your maybe sport injured leg for a while because you know to walk in that certain way it's going to hurt it so you walk in a slightly different way in order to give it time to heal and normally for most people that's fine it heals and you're better And we sort of have a fairly loose definition of the time at which we would state that something has made a transition from acute pain to chronic pain. So if somebody is still in pain due to either an injury, 
maybe due to an operation, maybe due to some sort of infection or a disease process. All these things can cause pain symptoms. Again, if somebody is in pain still three months later, so sort of you know reasonably well beyond the normal tissue healing time that we would expect everything to have gone back to normal and everything to be fine, then they would be defined as having chronic pain. And what we are increasingly now understanding is that this sort of transition to chronic pain really has no warning service and system. It's just the system's gone wrong now. And so now this is in effect, if you like, a sort of disease in its own right. So the various different things that maybe initiated the acute pain symptoms for certain individuals might then persist. And you can take different patients from different types of acute pain backgrounds and they will have a fairly similar subset of symptoms and signs, irrespective of what caused their initial pain. So there's a sort of commonality, if you like. Not all, there's still distinct differences between a patient with rheumatoid arthritis pain and osteoarthritis pain and somebody with nerve trauma. You know, they've come off a motorbike and ripped their nerves. But there will be shared similarities between them. And this is increasingly we're sort of rethinking how we view chronic pain, really, as something that when you've made that transition, this is because things in the body, in your nervous system, both right at the periphery, in the spinal cord and in the brain, have now altered in almost semi-permanent way. So now it's different to just providing a warning system. It's actually, it's gone wrong. There's now mechanisms and changes that are hardwired, if you like, and that have altered that are very common across all the different things that cause them, which is why they share these symptoms. And a lot of those changes that sort of maintain and sustain that chronic pain state for many patients their whole lives, unfortunately, occur across what we call the whole pain axis, so both the peripheral part, the spinal cord, which is where the peripheral signals first come in and go up into the brain, and then in the brain itself. And I guess that sort of leads you on to why then imaging is a useful tool, potentially, because obviously if you want to investigate this in people and in patients, it's very hard to see what's going on in their spinal cords and in their brains, and that's obviously where certainly the perception is, and that's where fundamentally pain becomes pain. And so we want to be able to see that. And it seems that these are fairly important regions of the body for this transition to chronic pain and chronicity, which, taking an aside, now is deemed as one of the largest medical health problems we have in the developed world. Um, If you look at that definition I just mentioned, it's thought that approximately 20% of the adult population are defined as having a chronic pain disorder, some sort of pain that's pretty persistent. So one in five adults, more common in the elderly, more common in women, the cost of managing and treating it as well as the cost to society of people not going to work because they've got a bad back or they've got neck pain or migraine you'll be amazed to know in Europe is 200 billion euros again these are estimates the values go up and down but it's a pretty big figure and in the USA about 150 billion dollars per annum so that's on the sort of treatment management as well as these days lost so it is a huge problem both economically obviously in terms of the suffering for the individual as well as the families because often these individuals particularly if they've now having to live with that pain for years they've stopped work the whole family structure has altered and many things can change in the relationships and things so it's a very complex problem and a large one I think people are often surprised at just the extent of the problem so we really need to try and address it because we have an increasingly aging population certainly in the UK anyway and as people are living older then we're going to have increasing 
societal problems with people managing and treating their pain. And as of yet, certainly for acute pain, there's very good drugs and things. Post-surgically, people are used to not expecting to be in pain after surgery. But certainly for the, these chronic pain people who are out there just living in our society, there are current medications that are being prescribed. How effective they are, it's well accepted that they're not particularly effective in that you have a lot of individuals who don't respond so they get no benefit and those that are lucky and seem to respond to the current drugs available it's not as if you're completely eliminating all the pain you're certainly doing a good job and reducing it but there's a lot of room for improvement so we have a tremendous number of people who basically are not able to have their chronic pain symptoms managed and met and they're just having to get on and live with it and cope and so this is why it's a very sort of top disease area of interest for the pharmaceutical industries to try and develop new and better drugs to combat it. And so if we're going to do that, we've got to understand it better. We've got to understand what are the mechanisms that are critical for maintaining it, developing it. Why do some people get it and some people don't to the same injury? You know, genetics is another huge area of research right now uh, and seems to play a very important role. Um, and so increasingly we're wanting to do studies more and more on people and in patients, and that requires us to need tools beyond just asking them how's your pain and getting a verbal description which to a certain extent if you ask the right questions and and have the time to do extensive interviews you can get an awful lot about what probably is contributing to the pain but really you need tools that can let you look inside the body and um, and that's really where my main interest which is in using non-invasive ways that's something I've always been personally very interested in from being an undergraduate here in Oxford and then do my graduate work in magnetic resonance methods for my PhD here was driven really by an interest in wanting to use tools that could look directly in humans and get in vivo living information right from the person or the individual uh, the patient without having to take biopsies and do the experiments in a test tube I wanted to actually very much have a research career where I could understand the mechanisms from what I would say is a systems level of understanding and and in vivo so sort of no assumptions needed no extrapolations that's the raw data straight from and then you can relate it to what the person tells you so you can bring the sort of interesting subjective personal description of what they're feeling and experiencing and try and relate that then to what you're measuring more objectively with these methods. And so that's been a motivating thing for me personally, and I've worked in different disease areas, always using magnetic resonance as a very powerful tool to do that. And then in the past 10 years, I've focused very specifically in the pain area and using a set of tools again within the magnetic resonance camp, if you like, that allow you to look at the functioning brain, so not just structure, not just chemistry, but actually the brain as it works. So how does magnetic resonance see pain in the brain? Yeah, okay, so sort of taking a step back, how do we, why is it that we use magnetic resonance imaging even just diagnostically? I mean, it's just one of those really serendipitous things about the body that what we're mostly made up of is water. And H2O, which is the sort of chemical structure for water, the hydrogen atoms, the protons, their nuclei without going too much into it, but they have this property called spin. And it means that in the presence of a very large magnetic field, they start to orient in the direction of the field. And the analogy I use if I'm teaching the medical students here is it's as if you're holding a geographical compass in the Earth's magnetic field. You expect the compass to point north-south. And as it happens, we're made up largely of water. So if you lie somebody in a very large magnet, a standard MRI machine, all their little water molecules will orient with the field. Now, what we then do, again, going back to the compass needle, is I can make the compass needle point south-north. I can pull the needle around and, and make it point in the other direction against 
the field by 180 degrees. But I have to keep my finger there, and so I'm putting energy in to hold it. If I take my finger away, it'll swing back. So what we do in a magnetic resonance imaging experiment or spectroscopy experiment is we have this person lying in the scanner, we expect all their little compounds to be lined up because of the spin thing, and then we pulse in some energy using special coils, and the energy range that we need to put into the body is only in the radio frequency range, so it's very safe because you just like the radio waves that are all around us, that's just the energy level we're in. We put a little bit of energy in, and we can make all those spins flip against the field, just like the compass needle pointing south-north. And they all flip against the field, and then we stop putting the energy in, just like I stop holding my finger and the compass needle, and then those spins will then go back and swing back, or what we call relax back, to the same direction as the field. Now, what's interesting is the speed at which they go back and how they go back tells us an awful lot about that particular water molecule and what environment it's in. So if it's a water molecule in muscle or in what we call grey matter of the brain or white matter of the brain or different parts, the sort of fluid-filled spaces, it's in a very different chemical environment, structural environment. And so how it's allowed to relax back is very different. And so its relaxation will be very different to a water molecule in, say, another region of the brain. And we we collect all that, we collect all this relaxing data, and then with some clever analysis, we are able to sort of decode it and get all sorts of information about the behaviour of that molecule in that particular tissue structure. And we can decode it to give us contrast, so we get very good images, so we can then distinguish all these different regions of the brain and get beautiful pictures. What makes a good picture is contrast, so again, you're trying to really harness the developer to see and distinguish this different relaxation property so that you get better contrast. You can get chemical information, so is this compound in there, how much of it is in there. In terms of the functional imaging bit, the actual sort of how do we then use that to get which part of the brain is active when I burn your hand, for instance, that then is sort of the next step along. So we've sort of got our basic imaging and we can collect our images of the brain and we can see all the different bits and that's great. Now, again, there's another serendipitous thing about the body separate to this fact that we have chemicals in our body and compounds in our body that just happen to have these properties of spin so they're susceptible to being put in a magnet. Another thing that's serendipitous which was discovered again in some experiments in biochemistry here in Oxford many years ago was if you have some blood in a test tube in a magnet obviously blood's got proteins in it's got haemoglobin in which is the protein that carries the oxygen around to deliver it to the cells so they can work and obviously the blood's got water in it as well so if you're imaging the water and collecting data about the water's this relaxation time if you bubble oxygen in and make more of the haemoglobin have oxygen attached to it so make it more oxygenated you change the relaxation time of the water so you can see a change in it and if you take the oxygen out you again change the environment and the relaxation and you see a change in the water so you can distinguish how oxygenated the blood is by the influence it has on the water that you're measuring with your MR. So people knew this way back in the 70s and thought gosh wouldn't it be amazing you know because obviously when the brain works and thinks and the nerves fire they need to be fed and so you need to give them oxygen so probably right there where the nerves are firing and the neurons are working and you could spatially see which bit of the brain is involved in whatever it is that you're making the person do or think you should have this change in oxygenated blood there should be less oxygenated blood there and that should have an effect on the water that you're imaging maybe you know wouldn't it be amazing if we could image it Well, in the 70s, when this was known, imaging hadn't even been really invented at this stage. And so there was a long 
time before all of this came together and it did all come together in a series of lovely experiments done by various labs in Boston, Harvard and other centres around the US and here in the UK and so the final sort of putting together of the capacity that in the human brain by taking images very quickly and looking at the change in the relaxation time of the water and the change, if you like, in the contrast of the image, because that's what it basically does. So you have an image that has a certain amount of contrast in one condition, and then we make you work and neurally activate a certain region. Then this phenomenon happens, and that causes a change in the contrast of the image in that particular region. And then you've got these two images, with and without you doing a brain activity task. And because you've driven this change in contrast, if you subtract those images... The only the region of the brain which is involved in the task will have a change in contrast, and so it pops out, and you can see it. And that really was the sort of basis of designing the first experiments, and it worked. It worked amazingly well, and that was the birth, really, of what we call now fMRI, or functional magnetic resonance imaging. So it took, you know, 10, 15 years to get there, uh, but once it got there, it just exploded our capacity to understand the human brain. It really was such an amazing changing gear if you like in how certainly that black box that's always been the human brain the sort of psychology of the brain you know the inability to have tools to look at it and see it and suddenly it just opened because we had a tool where you could basically as clever as you could be design experiments to tap into getting the person to activate specific parts of their brain and then see where so where do you make decisions how do you feel things like pain how does attention modulate that you know how do you see things how do you see moving things in color i mean all this mapping is what we've basically been busy doing for the past 15 years and again it's fairly true to say for a lot of neuroscience you know a lot of great sort of changes in capacity to understand something comes through a technological development you know that's really where paradigm shift in our understanding comes and i think this tool alongside other methods like positron emission tomography again other methods that look at blood flow just gave us suddenly for the first time tools to start to look at the human brain in action and it's again built certainly for the fMRI part of it on this serendipitous thing that when brain cells fire the amount of firing they undergo you know the more they work the more blood flow they demand and again interestingly going back to Sherrington he was the person the same person who did the nociceptor thing he did in the, again in those days they did all sorts of different things they were very sort of free scientists that could explore this that and the other now we're so rigid in what we're allowed to do we have to be very focused uh, but he also did the first pioneering experiments to prove that local changes in blood flow in the brain were linearly coupled to the amount of brain activity up until then people thought that if your brain worked you just had a generalized blood flow increase in the whole body through heart output but he proved in some really elegant experiments considering they had no tools that no this wasn't just a sort of systemic change in blood flow this was specifically and local to that region of the brain and so he had that concept and of course he he was right and that's the basis upon which we we harness the fact that We want to see where the nerves are working, but we can't see the nerves working directly. So we look at the blood flow going there. And so it's an indirect measure. And we look at the blood flow going there because it has this effect of bringing lots of good oxygenated haemoglobin, which when it's oxygenated, the iron atom in that haemoglobin becomes unpaired. Its influence on the magnetic field is altered. So again, this is what contributes to this contrast change. This idea that serendipitously the iron in the haemoglobin, when it gives up its oxygen, it becomes what we call paramagnetic. So it has an unpaired spin, so it it starts to distort that water molecule and make it 
relax in a different way. And then when it's oxygenated, it becomes what we call diamagnetic, so it doesn't distort the field and therefore has a different influence on the water and so gives a different contrast. And what basically happens is in the very first few milliseconds, you've got a very local drop in oxygenated blood in that region because obviously you're sucking it out. But we don't measure that because very quickly there's a trigger that says, hey, I'm working, I need blood here. And then about six seconds later, lots of oxygenated blood arrives to that region, bringing this oxyhemoglobin, this sort of diamagnetic iron that doesn't distort the image. And so in effect, your contrast now is better. So you take pictures then, you take pictures when you're not working or doing the task, subtract them, and only the bit of the brain that's working will you see the change. And that's, that's what we do. Obviously, the analysis gets a bit more sophisticated these days, but in effect, that's the experiment. So have you been able to identify the specific area of the brain exactly? Yeah, so, so sort of based on that method then, obviously all the time one's developing better ways to collect the data and improve signal-to-noise, but you know, just taking that basic principle, what you need to do is put somebody in the scanner, attach a pain device onto them, which could be, again, of a chemical, mechanical, thermal-type nature, and then you give them a period where they're not experiencing any pain and then you burn them or you prick them and it hurts and you collect their reports of what and how painful they think it is. And again, there are many different dimensions of how we want to rate their pain. You know, how intense was it in terms of was it mild, moderate, strong, severe? How unpleasant did you find it? Did you find it upsetting? So we can get all these other more woolly descriptions of what the pain felt for them. And then, of course, we're collecting images all the way throughout this. And we just subtract all the images when you were experiencing pain from all the images when you weren't. And the bits of the brain that have a contrast change are the bits that were processing that nociceptive input from that, say, thermal heat. And that tells us something about the pain network. And that's basically what we've been working on for the past 10 years is variations of that paradigm where we'll want to understand, you know, haven't got the basic network well, why is that particular brain region on? You know, now, is that on because it's more telling you where the pain's coming from? Is this bit telling you how intense it is? Is this the bit that's involved in how your attentional system is now being used to attend to the pain because you need to make a decision about how bad is it? Where is it? Should I do something about it? Um, is your motor system active because you're now going to make a movement away? And that's basically what we've been unravelling over the past few years and then getting into more psychological manipulations. So we make people anxious. So when you're anxious, the pain feels worse. When you're depressed, the pain feels worse. Why? So we, again, will design experiments where we'll make people, by doing tricks, we'll, we'll trick them and they'll become very anxious in the scanner or we'll make them very sad in the scanner by showing them sad pictures or playing really sad music really slowly and that's really depressing. <laughs> and then when they feel in a different mood, we'll give the same pain and then we can make them in happy moods or make them less anxious. And of course, we'll then see the change in their personal description of the pain. And as I say, if you're more anxious, pretty much most people will rate it more painful, the same input in the same session, which is intriguing. They wouldn't believe it until it happens. And then we can, in the imaging, again, unravel well, why. Why is it that when the brain's in an anxious state, the pain becomes worse? This becomes relevant for our, what we call, translational work in terms of patients. Because, of course, if you're living and dealing with chronic pain and you're now not working and you're financially struggling and the drugs aren't working, I mean, so many of these very important cognitive factors become very dominant uh, for that individual and they start to play havoc with their pain intensity and their experience. So the more we can understand that and, again, target it, and you know, in even non-pharmacological ways through 
maybe cognitive behavioural therapy, train them how to distract themselves, how to use tricks of when they know the pain's going to be bad, listen to some good music, you know, watch a nice film, learn to cope and accept that this is what it's going to be, so not fight it, not try and control it. These can have enormous impacts on then how that person will live their chronic pain life. So a lot of the work that we're trying to do, and again, I'm very much a translational scientist, so I'm very very motivated partly by the technique I use obviously because I want to use techniques that look at humans and see things in the living is because I really do want to translate our basic science and do good basic neuroscience that's exciting and novel and cutting edge but always with the emphasis that it should be translated into relevant issues for society and obviously my particular focus is for the chronic pain community and to try and understand their condition better and help the pharmaceutical industry get drugs that work better out quicker do a lot of work on that as well using imaging as tools to help them work out whether their drugs are working or not so that again ultimately maybe we can make a small difference in in that uh, terrible condition so in the case of chronic pain you're not treating the cause of the pain but you're giving pain relief instead Our chronic pain work, there's two approaches to it. One is you're trying to understand it, so you want to look at patients directly and you want to, basically, they're very brave, they come in and they'll allow us to manipulate their chronic pain. So take maybe somebody with rheumatoid arthritis, you know, they'll allow us to squeeze their painful knuckle joints and then maybe they'll be going on a course of treatment and we'll be monitoring them week two, week three, week four, taking lots of clinical measures, behavioural measures, so again, their report of, of how their mood has changed or their pain has changed, um, their daily activities have changed throughout maybe the treatment of drug, and then we'll relate that to what we're seeing with the imaging. So we're understanding very specifically clinical pain itself from a mechanistic point of view by having the imaging data, and we're understanding the interaction of that with an effective or non-effective drug uh, regime. And this has obviously two direct benefits. One is it helps understand the drug and whether it's going to work or not and why and how it's working because often we don't know that but also the drugs basically you can think of as tools they're tools that allow us to manipulate system that teaches us a lot about the mechanisms and so we use our drug studies are very much targeted with both those approaches one is a purely translational to help see what the drug is doing and why and that can help get better drugs made and also we can use the drugs as tools to help our science to understand and probe if you like what's going on by using the drug to manipulate and and shift the system. And so those are the sort of two reasons that I personally am very interested in doing drug studies uh, for. What do the drugs actually manipulate then? Do they make the brain not possible to receive? Yeah, a mixture of things. I mean, again, drugs, you know, will be targeted either to act only in the periphery or in what we call the central nervous system, so acting right in the spinal cord of the brain. So the opioids will be a class of drugs that everybody will be familiar with from poppies and morphine and that again in all the years we it's still the most effective analgesic and that's an interesting story because of course when people you know realized obviously that you have great great analgesia with morphine in an acute way obviously chronically it's problems associated with this addiction and you get tolerance problems but certainly in acute it's a fabulous agent and um way back when people started doing morphine people quite rightly asked the question, well, why on earth do we have receptors for morphine, which is an exogenous and outside world agent? And if the body has receptors for this, it's probably because the body makes its own chemical like morphine. And that was, of course, early work done years ago when people discovered that we made endorphins and encephalins, which, again, you release after you've been for a run, (laughs) um, you know, in all sorts of situations gives you that runner's high. 
also you release a lot in these situations of when I was talking about being distracted from pain and in that sort of fight or flight response when it's just not behaviourally relevant for you to be focusing on your pain because there's going to be a more threatening (laughs) body damaging situation happening and you need to block it. It turns out the brain's got this very powerful system which what we call top down communicates via which is in the brainstem this beautiful system in the brainstem, very old system that we have, which is called the descending pain modulatory system. This is where really the first sort of receptors for opioids were discovered in in some animal studies. And now we know that this is the system which top-down sort of high cortical structures involved with decision-making and attention talk via this system. And that system then talks down to the entry point in the spinal cord where those nociceptor signals are coming in. And they basically block them. And they just stop the signals, if you like, there. So nothing comes up, so you don't feel the pain. The moment that sort of fight-or-flight situation is over, that top-down modulatory system, this beautiful descending brainstem structure, uh, again, all via the opioid system, now is the sort of breakers released, if you like, and, of course, entry to the brain's allowed, so the signals come rushing up and you realise, oh, my goodness, you know, I've... I've got a great big bite out of my leg and it hurts. People will have that situation, I'm sure, in their sporting events, you know, in the sort of drive to score the goal or get the try. They won't, they won't notice that they've got a, a cut and they hurt, then it comes later. And it's, it's via this endogenous opioid system that we have. So the opioids is a class that's very well understood, if you like, in terms of where it's acting very much centrally, just stopping and blocking the pain. Other drugs will stop the s- signals coming in from the first place so they don't even get entry and they'll try and block them just locally. Other ones will try and just dampen down the capacity for the spinal cord to, again, transmit the information up. So, again, it's again a central, but it's at quite an early point in the central nervous system where it's just dampening down the excitability, if you like, or the ability for the, the synapses to communicate and work. So very, very different mechanisms of action. And, of course, all the new drugs now coming on stream, hopefully in the next 10 years, very different mechanisms of action, whole new classes built upon the new knowledge we've got about that chronic pain disease and the fact that now we know, aha, when you've got chronic pain, there's a whole set of new mechanisms that occur and go wrong. And now we've understood them, we've got new targets. And so now we're trying to stop that. And that's going to be a very exciting era to come, I think. We'll see how effective those concepts are. I'm very hopeful and optimistic that some of these very novel targets that really are built on new data that we've only had in the past 10 years hopefully will make a big contribution to the alleviation of chronic pain. You mentioned that we have a natural ability to block pain. Mm. Is it possible to train oneself to do that? Yeah, and I think that is, you know, I mean, certainly the non-pharmacological treatment approaches, these cognitive behavioural therapies, are very much training people to not pay attention to their pain, you know, distract themselves, cope better, reduce anxiety, all these things. And a lot of those mechanisms will be tapping into that natural system we have. And you'll find some people are very capable and effective of engaging it, and others just really aren't. And so I think that's another challenge or diagnosis and for clinicians is to sort of discriminate who's who's going to probably do better with that approach as opposed to somebody who's just really not and we've just got to get them onto the the, the drugs because that's the only effective therapy for them and I think newer ways of understanding pain and how it's built and what goes wrong enables people to think a bit more broadly about their individual patient and the complexity of what's contributing to that patient's pain 
and maybe think a bit more, and many clinicians are, they have a very multimodal approach to their treatment of it. So that includes psychology, drugs, physical therapy, again, so keeping the body active and motivated. All of these sort of, you know, that three uh, sort of triad of approaches seems to be a powerful combination. In your experiments, there must be a limitation to the amount of pain you can inflict. There is, yeah. No, obviously we're controlled by ethics, so every single study has to be approved by the local ethics committee, as it should be, and vetted, and subjects are all at liberty to withdraw at any time if they don't like the study. So yes, you know, we can't obviously make somebody uh, have a permanent pain. It's amazing what we are allowed to do, in the sense that people's willingness to contribute to the experiments and do it is fabulous, um, patients and normal subjects. The Ethics Committee are very sensible in their approach to what is relevant, but yes, we, we, could, we don't burn people too badly, basically, it's fine. Difficult for um, your result? Sometimes, yes, I think that's, it is a limitation. And again, if you think about the sort of approach one has to any biomedical science, often you start with understanding it in the normal healthy system, so you just understand the mechanisms. And then, of course, you want to understand why have those mechanisms that are the normal process and the normal system they would act on, why does it go wrong in that disease? And you can either go straight to the patient or you can do a model. Now, going straight to the patient, of course, that's the sort of best end stage. But the trouble with the patient is, again, from a scientific perspective, it's very hard to conduct patient studies. Not only is it difficult because of the complexity of recruitment, tolerance of the patients etc but there's lots of confounds with the patients and that no two patients are going to be the same because we like to have uh, what we call an n n being number and a cohort of subjects that are all exactly the same they're all 20 to 30 years old male right-handed five foot eight i'm joking but you know they have to be all of a certain type obviously patients are not so you have noise if you like there that contributes noise to the experiment and also the patients will be on drugs. And again, ethically, sometimes it's not appropriate to ask them to come off the drugs. Sometimes it is. So you might have different drug confounds, different doses of drug confounds, different, certainly in pain, you'll have patients who've got very high depression, very low depression. You know, so you've got some very major confounding factors that you've got to try and either control for or normalise or just take a very big number and then start to afterwards split them into groups. And so... They make them challenging experiments. And when you're in a new area and there's nothing known, it's very dangerous to go straight to the patient, is my view. Because when you don't know an, a new field, like we don't know much about the central processing of pain in humans, to go straight to the patients is risky because often you can't design the study well enough to be very clear causally about what you're seeing. So our preferred approach in these 10 years has been to really understand the mechanisms well in the normal person start to do a couple of what we call models in normal people where we can model some of the key symptoms that patients have. Now that's where we get into real ethical limitations because obviously you know, if you want to model chronic pain in a person that starts to get difficult because you want to make them have a lesion or a permanent thing. Now there are a couple of models that are accepted models for particular symptoms that chronic pain patients have and that brings me back to that chilli pepper story I was telling you and it again it's analogous really to the morphine story in that it turns out that the particular nociceptor, the pain receptor for chilli peppers, is a very large class of what we call a family of receptors that we have in the body. And they're called the TRP or transient receptor potential family of receptors. And there's particular ones for different, they're subtly different, these receptors. There's a particular one that binds capsaicin, which is the active ingredient of chilli peppers. That is the very same receptor, this family of receptors, that is the receptors or the nociceptors whereby thermal heat makes you experience it as painful. 
And that's why, perceptually, chilies are hot. That's why you describe them as burning and heat, because they bind. They're what we call a polymodal receptor. They, they have a multi-modes. They can, they can basically change their conformation due to thermodynamic heat input and send off the signal to the brain. And they can change their conformation due to binding capsaicin and send the signal off to the brain. When it gets to the brain, because it's the same nociceptor at the start, the perception's the same. So when I give talks, I always for free advise people, you know, so when you're eating your hot curry, you, you don't want to drink water because these are not water soluble because it spreads it around the mouth. So you, the sort of fatty drinks are good because it helps absorb and, uh, and it contains, if you like, the, uh, the burning sensation. But I think, you know, it's, it's an interesting, when you think about it, we all would describe that as a burning sensation and that's why it's the same receptor. So we've got this endogenous receptor that obviously does a job in terms of transmitting heat sensation. Do we have a chemical like capsaicin that we make? We don't know yet. Obviously, just like the hunt for endorphins and kephalins, people are very interested to know, you know, are there candidate molecules that maybe we make post-injury that bind to those receptors and signal burning sensations, which are some of the sensations that patients will have. And again, it's not resolved yet what the answer is to that. But the body's pretty efficient. So, you know, if it's got this thing, chances are there might well be something in there uh, that binds to that, that family of receptors. So going back to sort of the model, it turns out that if you rub chilli pepper cream on, we obviously don't just get chilli peppers and rub them on, we make up a special ointment with pharmacy. You can rub it onto the patch of the skin and you can create two models. One is sort of what we call model of primary hyperalgesia. Hyperalgesia is just a fancy term for increased. Hyper just means increased and algesia means pain. So if I gave you a pain stimulus and you rated it 6 out of 10, if you were hyperalgesic, the same pain stimulus in the same area, you would narrate as 8, so you make it worse. So if I rub chilli pepper cream on, in the area where I've rubbed it on, and if I burnt you there now, you'd rate it much more painful. Just like a sunburn, no difference. You go into a lovely shower that's normally pleasantly warm, you now find it painful. It's exactly this, one of the symptoms patients would have, that hyperalgesia, allodynia, as another. So basically hyperalgesia is when you would say it's more painful when you're giving a pain stimulus. Allodynia, another classic most common symptom really more common than the patients because obviously they avoid pain stimuli so the more common one is they feel burning pain when they put their clothes on they're lying in bed the sheets rubbing areas of their skin burning sensations and pain so there is a non-pain input just touch just normal touch but this now is transmitted somehow and it's piggybacking if you like onto the pain system and we want to know why because this is really important for chronic pain and so what we can do is mirror that symptom by putting our chilli pepper cream on. So we can have an area that, if I touch it, it's like, it's, it's just like sunburn. And in fact, we use sunburn as a model too. But the chilli pepper is another model. But the interesting thing is, it also does another thing. Because if you just leave it on for an hour, the constant input from that burning sensation of the chilli pepper cream changes something in your spinal cord and your brain. And it starts to do this little bit of transition to chronic pain type mechanism. So now when I poke you around the area, not close to the area, but away from where the cream is, so nothing to do with changes now in the skin, you now say, oh, that feels different, that feels more painful. It's nothing to do with what's changed in your, in your skin, in your periphery. What's happening now is those signals, when they go in, the moment they hit the spinal cord, they become amplified. And the brain also amplifies them through these top-down mechanisms, and in they go, and you say, ouch, that hurts more. And that mirrors exactly one of a very important mechanism that underpins a lot of chronic pain, what we call central sensitization, sensitizing the central nervous system. So ethically, we're allowed to use it because we can set up this thing. After about an hour, you'll have that. It will last for about an hour to two hours, and then you're fine. It all reverses when we wipe it off. So it's safe, but it just gives us a small window 
to start to look at mechanistically one of the mechanisms we believe are very important for chronic pain patients. And then we can image it and we can understand it. And that's what we've been doing a lot of work on. So that's one of the models we're allowed to use ethically. Another model is, and we can use it topically, this capsaicin, or we can inject it, two modes. Uh, another one we use is the burn, a UV burn, so giving people a sunburn. And that's pretty much it, to be honest. Thereafter, you know, you're really stuck. We can't, we can't do nerve lesions and cuts, compressions. We've got to pretty much then go straight to the patient. But what we've been able to do with these models, obviously in this lab and many other labs around the world, has, we hope, contributed a lot to the understanding of, again, one of these really major physiological mechanisms, this central sensitization that we, we believe really is critical to that maintenance of the chronic pain state. So that's a lot of the focus of our work here in the lab. And we combine that model with modulation of the model with drugs and new drugs so that we have, if you like, an assay of developing whether this drug is going to be good at switching off that mechanism or not. And that's been a lot of the work recently and a lot of the work that we plan to do in the next few years as well. Professor Tracy, thank you. Thank you.